Well, this past month or so, we've been looking into God's Word to see what it says about itself. And uh, we've looked at things like the sufficiency of God's Word and the authority of God's Word and the potency of God's Word, the power of God's Word in our, in our lives and in our church. And I trust this has been an encouragement and a challenge to you as it has been my own heart just to uh, wrestle with some of these great texts that I've always wanted to preach um, and just hadn't got around to. And so thank you for um, letting me do that. And uh, I thought we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of wrap this up with the big question, so what? (laughs) So what? So what is God's Word sufficient? So what? God's Word is authoritative. So what? That God's Word is potent and powerful in our lives. I thought we should look this morning at the proper response to God's Word. How should we respond? If, if If all these things are true about the Word of God, how should we respond? Well, we're going to go to God's Word and find out what He says about how we should respond. And it's found in James chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. While you're turning there, I'll have to let you know too, this is... Uh, a humbling uh, profession as a pastor. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were driving home from church, and typically I'll take the kids home after church, and we're riding in the car, and uh, Hannah, unsolicited, says, Daddy, she said, you know what my favorite part of your sermon is? And I'm thinking, ooh, this is going to be good. I'm, my daughter, you know, growing spiritually. She's really excited about things I've been preaching, what she's learning. She goes, Daddy, my favorite part is when you say, let's pray, because I know it's over. (laughs) So, you know, every once in a while, the preacher just has to be knocked down a bit and reminded that, uh, you know, he's not all that he thinks he is. And and so uh, with that, I'll read this passage and we'll pray. But at the beginning of the sermon, right? James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten. He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Father, we come before you as we approach this text, and it speaks to us so straightforward, even as we read it, that today we have one of two choices either to be a forgetful hearer or an effectual doer. And you expect and demand that we do something with what we're about to hear. And so I pray that you would help us to understand this passage and what it means and how it applies to our lives and that you, by your Spirit, would help us to know exactly what you want us to do as we leave here today and know exactly how to do it so that we might change and grow into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, let's pray, play pretend for a moment. And to do so, I want you to listen to the words of Chuck Swindoll in the first book that I ever read by him, uh, which was called Improving Your Serve. Some of you may have read that book. It's not about tennis, by the way. It's Improving Your Servanthood. But this is what he said, and I thought it was very well written. He said, let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family in the move to Europe for six to eight months and I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I will write you regularly and give you direction and instructions. I leave and you stay. Months pass. 
A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. And then finally I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room and she's doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite disco station. Kind of dates the book, I guess. I look around and notice the waste baskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you're finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a television room for watching the afternoon soap operas. And I say, well, what in the world is going on? And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. We got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we had letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided all the, personal, uh, all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two even memorized an entire letter. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, okay, you got my letters. You studied them and you meditated on them. You discussed and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Do? We didn't do anything about it. This type of response to a boss's instructions would not be tolerated in the business world, would it? And yet, how often is this the response, of God's instru- uh, the response to God's instructions in the Christian world that we live? I mean, are we so foolish to think that God tolerates professing Christians who read their Bibles who attend church and Bible study regularly, but never do anything about what they hear. If a boss has every right to expect his employees to wholeheartedly comply with his demands, how much more does God have every right to expect his followers to wholeheartedly obey his commands? Obedience to God's commands, I believe, is one of the best proofs that a person is a genuine Christian. Jesus said that, John 15, 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we what? Keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. I like how John MacArthur said it in his commentary on James. He said this, Obedience to the word is the most basic spiritual requirement and is the common denominator for all true believers. The bottom line of true spiritual life is not a momentary feeling of compliance or commitment, but a long-term obedience to Scripture. Those who consistently disobey God's word give evidence that they are without His life within them. Those who consistently obey the word give evidence of the life of God in their souls. He says, in light of that truth, there is a good reason to believe that there are countless men and women, children, who come to church regularly and make strong profession of being a Christian, but whose lives testify testify that they are not. If a profession of faith in Christ does not result in a changed life that hungers and thirsts for God's word and desires to obey that word, the profession is only that, a mere profession. He concludes by saying, Satan, of course, loves such professions because they give church members the damning notion that they are saved when they're not, and they still belong to Him, not God. In a word, what he's saying is that many people are deceived. And that's what the Apostle James was trying to help his readers avoid when he wrote to them saying, do not merely listen to the word and so what? Deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I think this short statement is a summary of the entire book of James. Really, uh, chapter 1, verse 22 is, is the theme of the entire book. Now, James, just to remind you of the background, was the leader of the pastor, or leader of the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. 
And he was writing to Jewish Christians who had been forced to leave their homes and their church in Jerusalem because of persecution. So now they were scattered all over Asia and they were experiencing all sorts of trials and difficulties and temptations. And apparently word had gotten back to James that some of them weren't living out what they said they believed. And so James warned them with this letter that if what they say they believed made no difference in the way they lived their life, then they had what James called in chapter 2, what? Dead faith. Dead faith. Faith that is nothing more than a verbal profession or intellectual assent to the facts about Jesus, but has no power to save your soul. And so he challenged them to examine their lives to make sure that they had true saving faith. That's the point of the book. And in order to help them do this, what he did was he gave them a series of practical tests to determine the genuineness of their faith. The first test he gave them was their response to trials and temptations, a very familiar passage of Scripture in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. And he explained how a true Christian responds to trials and temptations. And now as we move into this, the latter part of chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, he gives a second test. And that is how a true Christian responds to God's Word. And we've been talking about, again, God's God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is authoritative. God's Word is potent. It's powerful. So what? How should we respond to it? Well, here in these verses, James shows us that a proper response to God's Word involves two things. Number one, we need to be receptive. That's verse 21. And number two, we need to be responsive. That's verses 22 through 25. We need to, first of all, accept it into our lives. And number two, we need to act on it. And if we respond to God's word in these two ways, we're going to grow and we're going to flourish and we're going to produce much fruit as Christians, as the word works in our lives. But if we don't do these two things, the word of God will never grow in us and we'll experience, we'll experience an unfruitful life. It may be sufficient, it may be authoritative, it may be potent, but we'll never experience the blessings and the benefits of that unless we receive it and respond to it. So let's look at these two responses to God's word this morning. Number one, we need to be receptive. We need to be receptive. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. That, that phrase, receive the word implanted, that is the main command in this verse. That's the emphasis. That's what he's, what he's emphasizing. And that word receive means to welcome the truth of God's word into our lives with open arms. To, to, to put out the welcome mat, as it were, for the word of God. In other words, that we wouldn't resist it. We wouldn't twist it. We wouldn't argue with it. We would simply accept what it says. During Paul's ministry, he had a myriad of responses to his ministry of the Word. And in Acts chapter 17, he had a back-to-back blessing. And that was when he traveled to Thessalonica. And the response that those people had to the Word was wonderful. And if it couldn't get any better, he went to Berea and even had a better response to God's Word than it was in Thessalonica. If you remember 1 Thessalonians 2.13... This is what Paul said about the Thessalonians' response to the word. He said, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So they had very open and and receptive hearts to the word, to Paul's message. And they realized it wasn't just him speaking, it was actually God speaking through him. And then in Acts, of course, we have the, the account of the Berean, the people of Berea. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So that's where we get that phrase, be a good Berean, right? That when you, when you hear something, uh, either on the radio or you hear it from a preacher or you read it in a book, you need to be a good Berean. And that's, that's you go back to the Word and make sure that what you heard or, or what you read is, is based on the Bible. And so you always check things out with the Word of God and the Word of God is your standard. And so James tells us that when we welcome the Word into our hearts, it's like a seed 
that takes root in our hearts and begins to grow. Look back at James chapter 1, verse 21. He says, receive the word implanted. It's a great image there. The more we read God's word and meditate on God's word and memorize God's word and sit under the preaching of God's word, the more our spiritual life flourishes and the more fruitful we become as Christians because the word is like the seeds being thrown out and it sinks down into your hearts and it sets down roots and it begins to grow and produce fruit. But we have to notice here that James says a few other things in this verse. And he basically says there's some things that need to be true of us in order for the word to take root in our hearts, in order for the word to sink down and, and, and root itself and plant itself in our hearts. And there's, there's three prerequisites for being able to receive the word of God and have it implanted in our hearts. And they're right here in the verse. Number one is purity. Purity, look what it says. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. So the first essential to having an open and receptive heart to God's word is to remove the sin from our lives, from our hearts. And when he says putting aside, that was uh, a a favorite picture of the New Testament, of of taking off dirty clothes. Um, He said put them all aside. And we know Paul liked that analogy to describe the sanctification process, to put off and put on, right? Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3 talk about it. Look over just to to the next book, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Notice he didn't just say, hey, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. He says, in order for you to do that, in order for you to long for the pure milk of the word, to have a longing in your heart for God's word, you need to first deal with your sin. You need to first put aside sin in your life, malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, because those things are the kinds of things that put our mouths out of taste for the word of God. James uses a couple terms here that are just general terms for sin, not, not specific words. He uses filthiness, which is an interesting word because it was a medical term used for earwax. See the connection? In other words, having sin in our life is like having our ears stopped up with wax. And so it keeps us from hearing what God wants to say to us. And he says, so put aside that filthiness, clean out your ears, if you will, and all that remains of wickedness. In other words, the the sin that you have left over in your life, that abundance or that surplus of of evil actions and attitudes that gush forth from your heart. We're learning that in our equipping hour on Sunday mornings, that that according to Luke 6.45, that the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart. In other words, what comes out in our life is really what's going on in our heart. And our hearts are constantly overflowing with sin. And in order for our hearts to receive God's word, we must be constantly dealing with the sin in our lives. Confessing our sin. Asking God to forgive us for our sin. Purity is a a prerequisite for receptivity. I was doing that this morning, just sitting here during the worship time, thinking, you know what? I need to make sure my life is clean and pure. Before you, Lord, if I'm going to be up here and I'm going to be open and receptive to, to, to your word in my own life, I need to make sure that I'm pure and I'm clean. I hope you do that when you're here and you're realizing the word's coming up here, the preaching's coming up. And, and if I've got sin in my life, it's as if I, I got a, my ears just full of earwax. I got to get the Q-tips out, Q-tips of confession, if you will, and start digging it out and cleaning out the sin in my life. So that when, when, when the, the, the pastor gets up to open the word of God, and the Word of God is read, and the Word of God is explained and applied, it's, it's, it's not just you know, bouncing off deaf ears. So we've got to do some prep work before we come to church so that our hearts are receptive, and that is making sure we're pure. A second prerequisite is humility. Humility, notice what it says. He says, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility... Receive the word implanted. Humility refers to having a gentle and meek attitude that causes us to set aside our preferences and our opinions. Instead of stubbornly, stubbornly refusing to submit, we, we learn to submit 
to other people. I think this, this word humility is in contrast to the prideful anger that's mentioned in verses 19 and 20. You, you see that the, the first word of 21 is therefore, and we always have to ask ourselves, so if you see a therefore, what's it there for, right? We'll look back at what he says in verse 19. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That verse has a lot to do with how we receive the word of God. And, and James gives these three rapid-fire commands. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And I think each of those three things there demonstrates teachability regarding God's word. I mean, if you're, if you're quick to hear, that means you're, 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 you're okay, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, I want to hear. I want to learn. If you're slow to speak, it means you're, you just... You say, okay, this is not my time to talk. It's my time to learn. And it says if you're slow to anger, in other words, you don't get mad at what the preacher says, right? I can't believe he said that. I don't think that's true. But you have a humble, submissive heart. And so receptivity to God's word requires a humble submission to the authority of God's word. We're working on that with little Jacob because he's in that know-it-all stage, you know, where you say, hey, Jacob, do this. He goes, I know. Hey, Jacob, you need to do this. I know. And uh, how, how did you know? Oh, I just knew it. I said, how did you know? I just knew it. And so we're trying to help him understand, hey, buddy, you need to be humble. And you need to be teachable. And guess what? Mommy and daddy have been alive a lot longer than you. And that means we know a lot more than you. Okay? Just want you to know that. All right? <laughs> you got to help your kids understand that they need to have a humble submission. There needs to be a, a teachability. And the basis of teachability is humility. And you're submitting to the authority of God's word. There's a third prerequisite that James gives us here in this verse. Notice what he says. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted. Now watch this. Which is able to save your souls. We'll call that gravity. Gravity. And I'm not talking about the law of gravity. I'm talking about seriousness and the soberness that should grip us, grip our hearts when we're exposed to God's word. James is just affirming what the rest of the Scripture teaches, is that the Scriptures are the tool that God uses to bring people to salvation. We, we learned that from Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about him, how the Word, the Scriptures that Timothy learned from as a child, made him wise for what? Salvation. Over in 1 Peter, just a couple pages to your right there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. How are you and I born again? How are we born again? It was through the Word of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he said, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He went on to say in, 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 in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he said this, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, and to the other an aroma from life to life. So Paul understood whenever he got up to preach in in his ministry, he says to some people, we're a fragrance of salvation. But to others, we're a fragrance of death. Some people listen to the preaching of God's word and it's an aroma of life. Why? Because they're saved and they, they, they know they're going to heaven. To others, it's a stench of death because it just convicts them, it condemns them. And then Paul said this, and who is adequate for these things? I mean, who's adequate to do that? To stand in the gap between heaven and hell with the word of God. He said, who's adequate for these things? And so when Paul considered that the eternal destiny of the souls of his hearers hung in the balance while he preached, he was overwhelmed with his own inadequacy and with the gravity of his task. I appreciate how John Piper expressed this inadequacy in his book called The Supremacy of God in Preaching. He said this, quote, talking to preachers, he says, you wake up on Sunday morning and you can smell the smoke of hell on one side and feel the crisp breezes of heaven on the other. He says, you go to your study and you look down at your pitiful manuscript and you kneel down and cry, God, this is so weak. 
Who do I think I am? What audacity to think that in three hours my words will be the odor of death to death and the fragrance of life to life. My God, who is sufficient for these things? And I would say if the gravity of the word of God grips the preacher and teacher, how much more should it grip the hearer and the listener? Because when we realize that our eternal destiny The eternal destiny of our soul is at stake when we hear God's word. We're going to listen with great seriousness and great sobriety. So understanding the gravity of the word of God, the seriousness of the word of God is essential to being open and being receptive to it. So just reviewing quickly, the receptivity to God's word here that James is encouraging us, involves having a pure heart, having a humble heart, and having a sober heart. And so I ask you this morning, do you have this type of heart when it comes to receiving the Word of God? Do you have a pure heart? Do you, do you confess your sin and deal with your sin before you're exposed to the Word of God so that the Word of God can penetrate your mind and your heart? Do you come with a humble heart? That's, that's willing to just, if, if God said it, that settles it. I'm going to do it. No arguments about it. No protesting. I'm just going to do it. And you come with a sober heart. Like Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, that, that to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite and who, what, at my word? Remember? Trembles at my word. That's what it requires to be, to be receptive and open to God's word. But you know what? Being receptive to God's word, it's not enough. It's only the beginning. Because a proper response to God's word also includes being responsive. In other words, we must act on what we hear. We must apply it to our lives. And that's what James goes on to say here in verses 22 through 25. And verse 22 is really an exhortation. Notice what it says. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That word prove just means to show yourself to be something. And it's in the present tense. In other words, you should be continuously and habitually being a doer of the word. A doer of the word there, that's the key phrase. You might want to underline that or highlight it in your Bible or circle it. That's just someone who does what the Bible says. Someone obeys. And I think it's interesting to note here that James' emphasis was not on what we do, but on the kind of person we need to be, that we need to be a doer of the word. That describes who we are, right? He was exhorting his readers to be the type of individual who habitually submits to and obeys God's word. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely what? Hears. Hears. And that's an interesting word because the Greeks used that word to describe someone who attended a lecture but wasn't a disciple of the lecturer, which was, in in those days, the Greeks were big on lectures and, you know, philosophy and and reason and argument. And so there was lots of people that would be lecturers and and leaders and they would have disciples. But at the same time, uh, they would have guests who would come and just sit, but weren't a follower, if you will, of that particular teacher. I think a similar... Analogy to us today would be those who audit a class. Anybody ever audited a class in college? It's my favorite kind of class, right? It's the easiest class you can take, right? You kind of get there, you get all the good stuff, you get all the information, but you don't, do, don't, have, don't have to do any of the work, right? I mean, you, you have no homework, no tests, no responsibilities. Everybody else is slaving away around you and sweating bullets, and you're just having a great time taking in all the information. I think it's a lot, like a lot of people go to church, they, they merely audit the sermon, if you will. They take in the information. In fact, they even tell the preacher on the way out the door what a good sermon it was. But they never do anything about it. After they leave church. I mean, people come up sometimes and say, man, Pastor, that was a great sermon. And I typically just say, thanks, I appreciate that. I'm glad it was encouraging to you. Sometimes I feel like saying, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I appreciate that it's, it was a great sermon. That's, that's great, but that's, that's not what I wanted to hear. I want to say, you know what? I, nothing more encouraging to the preacher and say, hey, I want to tell you what 
about that sermon was so great for me because this is what it did. It convicted me about this and this is what I want to do differently. This is how I want to change. This is what I'm going to work on this week. See, learning the word is simply a means to an end. The goal of learning God's word is so we can live it out in every area of our life. How many of you ever listened to Alistair Begg on the radio, Truth for Life? One of my favorite preachers. Um, his, his radio program is called Truth for Life, and then his little tagline is, where the learning is for what? Living. Where the learning is for living. He got that right. Some of you have seen a, a, a letter I might write, and oftentimes I'll use as a signature, living out the living word. Because that, to me, is, is, is what it's all about. I remember when I was moving out here from California, and I prayed the whole way from L.A. to, um, I got lost in El Paso somewhere. That was like a long way away. Man. <laughs> Kids kept saying, are we in Texas yet? Yeah, we've been in Texas for about 10 hours now, but we're, we're in Texas. But the whole way I was praying, Lord, give me something in my mind that could kind of just capsulize my passion. And that was what he gave me, living out the living word that we believe that this book that we have before us is alive, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So what? So we live it out in our lives, amen? Living out the living word. One of the greatest compliments I've ever received was when someone said to me after church one time, they said, you know what, Ken, I can tell that you like really expect us to do what the Bible says. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting somewhere there, all right, yeah, Exactly. That's exactly right. That was a great compliment. Because it's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. I hope you're not just coming here to make me feel good on Sunday mornings. That's not the point. God forbid that we would come every week under the delusion that just accumulating more knowledge of God's word is enough. That is not what God wants. This is a means to an end. Knowing God's word and agreeing with God's word is not enough. We must obey God's word. Or we're only fooling ourselves. And I I think too many of us get spiritually satisfied by the fact that we go to church every Sunday. Or that we have our devotions every day. Or we go to Bible study every week. We go to a small group. But we are kidding ourselves if we're not applying it. If we're not putting into practice the things we're reading and the things we're hearing and the things we're learning, we are, we are deluding ourselves, as the Scripture says. Literally, we're misleading ourselves. We're misjudging ourselves. We're miscalculating the situation. We're, we're deceiving ourselves with faulty reasoning. Because if what we're hearing isn't changing the way we're living, it's proof that our encounter with God's Word is merely superficial. It's not supernatural. Are you deluding yourself this morning? I mean, it's one thing to be deceived by someone else, but the worst thing in the world is to be self-deceived. And that's what he's saying. That if you simply hear the word, but don't do anything about it, you are deluding yourself. You are self-deceived. That's the exhortation. And he follows it up with an illustration in verses 23 through 25. And this illustration has two people, two types of people. Verse 23 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So it's an interesting picture here, isn't it? It's talking about looking into a mirror. And that word look is not just a casual glance, but he's talking about a careful inspection there. And he says, looks into a mirror. Now, in those days, mirrors were not made of glass. They were just really shiny metal. Brass or copper or silver was just beaten down and polished to make it shiny. But what James is doing here is he's comparing God's word to a mirror. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of a mirror? Why do we have mirrors everywhere? Why do, we, why do we have mirrors in our bathrooms? Why do we have mirrors, you know, in our cars? Why do, why do we, what's the purpose of a mirror? What purpose do they serve? Well, typically it's to see what we look like so we can see what needs to be fixed or changed, right? 
That's, that's the purpose of the mirror. Just to, so we have something to look into. To see if we need to comb our hair. Or to put our makeup on. Or to put whatever on. And to change our clothes because they're all dirty or wrinkled. And you can't see that unless you're looking in the mirror. And the bottom line is mirrors don't lie. Mirrors always tell the truth. And it's brutally honest. And sometimes we don't like what it shows us. Remember the, the witch of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And what did she want to hear? Oh, queen, you are. But what did she get? Snow White. She hated that mirror. See, in the same way, God's word never lies, and it shows us who we really are. And sometimes we don't like what we see, but we have to be careful not to be like the person that looked at his face in the mirror, didn't like what he sees, so he smashed the mirror. It's not the mirror's fault, right? But he says, if you're one of those people that just hears the word and don't do anything, you're just like a person who looks at his face in a mirror, and once he's looked at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Just think about this. I mean, it's a kind of, I think, a kind of humorous picture. You know, somebody walks up to a mirror, looks in the mirror, sees all this stuff that needs to be changed or fixed. It's out of place. And they just shrug their shoulders and walk away without ever doing anything about it. So they're walking around through life with their hair all messed up. They got pimples all over their face. And, you know, they got, their clothes are all dirty and wrinkled and disheveled. And I think we do the same thing when we walk away from reading our Bibles or hearing a sermon and never do anything about what we read or heard. And I would say this, this is not only a foolish attitude to have concerning God's Word, it's a dangerous one. You say, how's that? Because when a person is constantly exposed to God's Word but doesn't respond properly to the truth that they hear, they're going to lose any truth that they might have. That's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, in the context of the parable of the soils, which is a story about responding to God's word. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, the disciples said, well, why do you speak in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him shall more be given and shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, those who listen and respond to my word, Jesus said, I'm going to give them more. I'm going to help them understand more, and help them apply more in their life. But if they don't, I'm going to even take away the little truth they might have. I would just say this, if you don't plan on applying anything about what you read from your quiet time, then don't have a quiet time. Seriously, if you're not planning to apply what you read in in the Bible in the morning, then don't do it. Or if if you don't plan on acting what you hear in church, then don't come. If you're not planning on applying what you learn, then do not come. Why? Because you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. And not only are you wasting your time, but more importantly, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. The more you read and the more you hear without doing anything about it, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. And I think the scariest thing of all is that listening to God's word without applying it will ultimately harden our heart and deaden our soul to God's word. We'll become deaf to God's word. You've heard it said before, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. In other words, there's no neutral ground with God's word. Every time we're exposed to God's word, we're either being softened by it or we're being hardened by it. Right now, in this room, some of you are being hardened to God and some of you are being softened to God based on your response to God's word. You can't just come and sit and kind of be neutral and well, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be softened or I'm going to be hard, I'm just going to stay where I'm at. No. You're either getting softer to God or you're getting harder to God. And that's why I think it's so important that we should always ask ourselves when we've read our Bibles, after we've read our Bibles 
or, or heard a sermon or read a book. Okay, what do I need to do? Number one. And number two, when am I going to do it? Jay Adams was great yesterday. He came up and just popped in for a few minutes and sat down on his little bench and, and just exhorted us. He said, listen, you've heard a lot of stuff this weekend. That's all great and everything. But before you leave, make sure you put it into practice. And he said, the way to do it, ask yourself two questions. What do you need to do? Number one. And number two, when are you going to do it? And he said, don't wait till Wednesday because that's too long. Start Monday. Start tomorrow. Start today, right? So I don't encourage you. You're sitting here thinking, well, wow, man, how do I apply? What do I? Think of just one thing today from this sermon that you can walk out of here and say, I'm going to work on that this week. I'm going to work on that this week. I'm going to try to change that, begin changing that area in my life, whatever it might be. But never walk out of here and go, well, what was, that? what was the point of that sermon? You know, or read your Bible and go, oh, that was nice. Okay, I did my quiet time check. When's breakfast? You know, make sure you always walk away with at least one thing that you need to do and determine when you're going to do it. And the best time to do it is right away. So that's the forgetful here. But then he goes and turns the coin over to the positive side, the effectual doer. Notice he says, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. James uses an even stronger word here in verse 25, because he says, not, he doesn't just look into the mirror, verse 23, but he looks how? Intently. And so it means here to stoop down and look in order to see exactly now, this is the same word that was used in the gospel to describe how Peter and Mary bent down to look into the empty tomb. They, they got right down in there. It's like you think of the picture of somebody getting up on the counter. You're looking at the mirror in your bathroom, and you're getting up on the counter because you want to even get closer. And you're like, you know, get two inches away from the mirror because you want to see something really close. So that you're looking in a penetrating way. You're, you're absorbed. You're gripped by what you see. And so we need to ask ourselves, does... Do we have that kind of interest in the Word of God that we carefully examine our lives in light of what we read and what we hear? Notice he says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. That's an interesting phrase. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but that's very ironic in light of the way our world thinks about laws and liberty. Most people think that freedom and laws are mutually exclusive, right? I mean, how can you have freedom when there's laws? That laws limit our freedom. And most people don't like the Bible because they think it's too restrictive. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations that rob us of our freedom. And they think that, that the freedom is living without rules when they don't realize that they're living as slaves to their sinful desires. They think they're free, but they're not really. And so the Bible frees us from our slavery to sin. And so as Christians, we understand that being free is not doing whatever we want, but being free is being able to do what we should, right? What we ought to do. He says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the liberating word, and abides by it, remains in it, continues in it, keeps doing it, consistently lives a life of obedience. That's what he's talking about there. Hebert says, God wants more than isolated acts of obedience. The believer's entire life must be devoted to the incessant doing of his will. This is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? make you free. It'll make you free. So what's the result of being this kind of person? Look what it says at the end of verse 25. If you abide in the perfect law of liberty, not having a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man shall be what? Blessed in what he does. That word blessed in the Bible talks about made happy. That person will be be joyful and will be happy. It, it's the same word that you used earlier. If they respond to trials correctly, it says in verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. He'll be blessed. And so James promised that if we consistently obey God's word, 
God will consistently pour out his blessing on our lives. But when we disobey, we forfeit his blessing. Isn't that the principle that God laid down in the Old Testament? If you obey me, I'll what? Bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll what? Curse you. And we see this in countless times, countless occasions. Joshua 1.8. If you meditate on the law, you will be prosperous and your way will be made successful. Psalm 1 talks about blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Notice it just say, blessed are those who hear the word of God. Blessed are those who hear it and observe it. John 13, 17, if you know these things, you're blessed. Is that what it says? No, it says if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See, it's not enough to know them. That's not the, the, the means to blessing of knowing all about, knowing all this, this, the facts about the Bible. It's doing them. That brings blessing. See, most people in the world are trying to find happiness by living their lives their way, the way they want. And as long as they refuse to obey God's word, they're never going to be happy. Because living our lives in obedience to God's word is the key to happiness. It's the key to blessing. So what type of person are you? Are you the forgetful hearer or the effectual doer? You say, I don't know. And I'm not sure it really matters that much. Oh yeah, we'll turn back to Luke 6 for a second as we close. And I want to show you that this matters. Which one of these you are. Luke chapter 6 Some say it's just a parallel account of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. Others say it was a separate sermon called the Sermon on the Plain. Either way, it's pretty much the same sermon. And it, and it, and it ends with the same illustration. And it's really the grand crescendo of this sermon that Jesus wants to bring this thing down to its close. And after telling him all these things, this is what he says. Verse 46. Luke 6, 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, what? Do what it says. Circle that word. Everyone who comes to me and, what? Hears my words and acts upon them, does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood rose, laid a, uh, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Sounds pretty good to me, right? You hear the word of God, you hear what I just told you, and you do it, you act on it, then your life is going to be solid. It's going to be on a rock foundation. And no matter what comes upon you in life, you're going to stand. Nothing will be able to blow you over in life. But, on the other hand, he said, the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, let me tell you what he's like. He's like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Beloved, that's not just talking about a simple trial in your life. I think that last phrase when it talks about the ruin of that house was great has the magnitude there of eternity in mind. And so Jesus was challenging the people to put into practice everything they had just heard and obey everything he said. And he really gave this, this as a warning that their eternal destiny was based on how they responded to the sermon. And obedience results in not only abundant life here on earth and security here on earth, but security forever, salvation in heaven. But disobedience results in not only a shaky, distorted life here, but ultimately eternal damnation in hell. 
And so the question we need to ask ourselves is what does our response to God's word tell us about where where we're going to spend eternity? Because these are eternal things we're talking about. How does your response to God's word tell you, or how does it tell you, or what does it tell you about where you're going to spend eternity? Because what Jesus said is forgetful hearers, where do they go? Hell. Effectual doers go to heaven. Let's pray. Father God, these are sobering truths. But at the same time, they bring great joy to our hearts. Because we know that while you command us to obey your word and to do what you've told us in your word, you also have told us in that same word that it's you who work in us. It's you who grants us the ability to obey. It's you who grant us the ability to do and to put into practice and to apply your word. It's you that that works in us that which is pleasing to you. And Father, we don't want to go out of here and grunt and strain and think it's all up to us and fall into a works-based salvation where we earn our way to heaven by our doing, by what we do. Because that's not the point at all. We're saved by grace through faith alone. We're so grateful for that, God. Thank you. But we also know that the evidence of true, genuine, saving faith is a life of obedience. And so I pray that you would make us a group of people who are not forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. And that we'll be open and receptive to your word whenever we read it, whenever we hear it. And even more important, that we be responsive to it. That we do something about it. That we change. That we grow. To be the people you want us to be. Because that's why you gave us your word. So that we would know who we are and who you want us to be. And make that our pursuit. And so we love you this morning and thank you for being so great and so awesome. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.